Your podcast starts after this quick message from Clear. The average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for allergens and germs to get in your nose and body and wreak havoc. That is, unless you regularly clean your nose and sinuses. So for healthy breathing and a strong body, use Clear Nasal Spray. Clear is a natural nasal spray featuring xylitol, an ingredient clinically proven to work against bacteria and effectively clean, not just rinse, your nose. Clear Nasal Spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. In fact, in a recent study, researchers found that xylitol nasal sprays like Clear are just as effective as leading medicated nasal sprays. For better breathing, get Clear today. That's spelled X-L-E-A-R. You can find it at all major retailers, CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, Sprouts, Whole Foods, and everywhere else. You're listening to Radio MD. She's a chiropractic physician, lecturer, author, entrepreneur, and talk show host. She's Dr. Suzanne Bennett. These are time unprecedented for times. For we Life need to Radio. work extra hard Here's to manage Dr. our Suzanne. thoughts and feelings of despair and anxiety about the current COVID-19 pandemic. We also have a lot of mixed feelings and waves of panic when we see the latest news about racial inequalities and injustice. I want to make an conscious effort to be inclusive in my life, including here on Wellness for Life. And as a healthcare practitioner and of Korean descent, I know it takes all shades of skin to make the world a better place. How do we cope with these daily psychological stressors? What can we do to minimize the traumatic impact to our physical and mental health? Today, we have Dr. Brunel Anderson, an African-centered clinical psychologist with professional interests and experience, including collective trauma and historical harms, mindfulness meditation, the psychological impact of chronic medical disease, psychology, uh, psychotherapy with African descent persons, and spiritual issues in psychotherapy. She is here to help us to be more resilient in our lives. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Brunel. It is my pleasure, Dr. Suzanne. Thank you for having me. You bet. You know, as I mentioned in the intro of the, these current racial inequalities and injustice, can you speak to the health effects of this trauma, the trauma that, that's associated with race, racism? Yes, definitely. The first um, quote that comes to mind is MLK said in 1967, a riot is the language of the unheard. So, so much of the social unrest that we're seeing now is grounded in silence being a hallmark of oppression. And there's a huge cost, physical cost, psychological cost around being not being able to give voice to the experiences of oppression. And so some of the health effects in relationship to the oppression of racism are a decrease in immune system functioning, increased heart attacks, the research shows, increased diabetes as well as an increased mortality rate um, with African-Americans particularly, even when they are, have socioeconomic status um, 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 uh, equalized. And so no matter what the socioeconomic status of the person within the black community is, there's an increased mortality rate. And there's also an increase in um, um, mortality in terms of birth rates. And so it's a huge impact on African-descended people right now. You know, I, I know that uh, your expertise is in, in uh, the African-American community, but mm -hmm. I still think that it also goes to other um, cultures, all the other cultures deal with the same same issues of health issues. Can you explain that Definitely. a little bit? 
Yeah, you know, even when we think about collective trauma, um, you know, so many different groups have experienced trauma. And I even think about undocumented persons who are fearful of deportation. When we think about even now, um, different groups who are experiencing the impact of societal trauma of the pandemic. Um, And yes, definitely my expertise is working with African-descended persons. And like you mentioned in the intro, we're seeing, you know, things in terms of racial injustices more prominent, um, particularly around state violence, around law enforcement. But there definitely um, is an impact on many different groups because oppression impacts us. Like when we aren't able to give voice and and live our lives from a place of being able to be full with all of the different ways in which how we are um, born as persons to live, whether it's a sense to feel needed, a sense to be connected, a sense to be able to live a life filled with our purposes and our passions, then that impacts us when we have obstacles that keep us on the margins of society and not able to access the resources that groups within the dominant culture are able to um, access. I think it's also, I mean, we talk about cultures, but let's talk about gender. As a female, Mm -hmm. as a female, uh, we go through the same thing. Yes, some similar things. Yes, one of my um, areas is kind of intersectionality. So thinking about how different marginalized, um, how different groups or different persons can have different marginalized identities. So as a person of African descent who's also a woman, but I also have my privilege in terms of being cisgendered. I have my privilege in terms of my heterosexuality. And so I think what's really important is for us to have like more nuance around how we see ourselves, not just through one lens of marginalization, but also to be able to own our privilege in different areas of our identity. Mm. You mentioned about, you know, the oppression of, uh, is, is actually silence. You know, that's where it's, it's all started. Uh, can you give us some example? What does that mean so that people yeah, can so- understand? Yes, one example I can give is if you think about your history lessons, think about like in school books, let's take um, particularly with people of African descent. And I remember growing up in elementary school and feeling so ashamed to talk about enslavement. And they would use the word slavery instead of enslavement. And I'm really intentional about not saying slavery or even slaves, but saying enslavement or enslaved persons because it suggests a condition as opposed to this is the person's lot. And so when I remember studying about that, even being told about it, I wanted to just crawl underneath my desk. And so one of the ways that we need to break the silence is to speak the truth, even the painful truths about what really happened, what that period meant, and how it's still living out even today in terms of what we're seeing in terms of um, brutality and violence towards people of African descent. So that's one example of silence. Another is when you're in a workplace setting, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this even as a person of Korean descent. There are times if you're in a workplace setting and it's a predominantly white environment that you feel like, well, can I speak my experience wherever I'm from? Will they be able to understand it or relate to it, even if you know that the person's there are well-intentioned and good-hearted folks, sometimes there's a silence around, will they be able to understand or relate? Or can I say something in response to this racial microaggression that happened? For instance, I will often hear people say, oh my goodness, you're not like other black people. You're so smart and so articulate. Well, that's a racial microaggression. And so many communities can experience those racial microaggressions. But I think those are some examples of kind of the ways in which the silencing can happen where you don't feel like, oh, I don't know if I could say something in response to that because that's my boss who just racially microaggressed me. Mm, such a great point. I think that a lot of, uh, when, when, you know, just, just in conversation, I want to talk to you about how when people say that, you know, it's like, oh, you're so smart and blah, blah. They genuinely believe that. They genuinely <laughs> yeah. believe that you are super smart, you're bright, you're articulate. And, but, but um, they don't realize that it is a, a it's a, it's a, example or or they're just sharing things that actually still put you in a position where you're different. 
Yeah, right? well, not just that. My, I embrace my difference, but what where it's coming from is, oh, you don't match my stereotype of unintelligent, inferior black people. So I want to comment on that as if it's a compliment. But really what it is, it's an injury. And so mm. what the research says in terms of racial microaggressions is they're like these daily assaults that happen continuously. And you probably can think about this in terms of within the medical profession, that if you have like a paper cut that happens every single day, a certain number of times a day, and over time, that's going to get really, really painful. Painful. And the chronic pain of that impacts our sense of ourselves, our sense of worth. It takes psychic energy to respond to that. And so that energy is then taken away from other ways that we can be productive in our lives, whether it's family or work. And so although there may be the intention may be one that is like, oh, let me give you a compliment. The impact of it is one that's injurious and it actually comes out of a negative stereotype that the person has internalized that they don't even realize. Oh, wow. That's that's so true. You know, there's a book. There's a book um, that I'm familiar with, White Fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that book describes how we say things, and it just it doesn't mean just from white people. I mean, I could be mm-hmm. saying things. I mean, I'm, I'm not, obviously, I'm, I'm a, of Korean descent, so I'm, I'm Asian, but I can be saying things that, to me, I would not at all think that I'm being injurious, but I could be for sure. It's a very right. interesting time now because we have got to look at words are powerful. I mean, words are super, super powerful, as you yeah. say, enslavement instead of slavery. And they have a deep meaning of energy that can that can yeah. either uplift us and make us more expansive or it will make us collapse and shrink. Yes, 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 Dr. Suzanne, all of that. And when you think about the collapsing and shrinking, I think about just that the idea of silence, you know, that, you know, MLK saying a ride is a language of the unheard, that when you aren't able to give your voice, there's shrinkage that happens. You know, and so that shrinkage, shrinkage has such an emotional, psychological, spiritual and relational and physical toll. Right. And I'm, I'm very familiar as a clinician, the genetic actual. Interestingly, I've learned from Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Bland that, that trauma, trauma can skip generations and there's a genetic component in our body that is expressed gen- in future generations, depending on what type of trauma uh, you, you have had. It's really phenomenal information yes. because we've got to think about that for our future People. Yes, I so agree. Like part of what you're talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in epigenetics, but I'm familiar with some of that research. But the um, thing that I am clear about is the impact of historical trauma. And so that's just kind of like the psychological wounding that a group of people experience over a lifespan, but that is oriented in historical experiences. But it goes across generations. So it's like intergenerational trauma, right? So even seeing some of the current violence, whether it's the videos or hearing about stories where people are being marginalized or hurt or some act of violence in some way, it triggers that historical trauma, whether it's of enslavement of it, or if it's of the reconstruction era of terror, where the KKK was really popular for people of African descent in terms of just that kind of terrorized behavior, Jim Crow um, experiences. And so even though people may see the unrest now and they say, well, wait a minute, okay, well, maybe that wasn't so bad, or maybe if he had been quiet, that wouldn't have happened and the police wouldn't have had to kill him, or maybe if he didn't have that counterfeit dollar bill, all of the maybes are situated within one, the context 
as if that individual person doesn't have a cultural identity and that cultural identity isn't connected to a, a collective identity, but also is taken in isolation as if our historical trauma isn't also then triggered and lived into the present moment. And so then the voice of the silent, of those who've been silent, say, no, we have to be heard. Mm, mm. You know, um, you, you know, we were talking about a little bit about that, the violence and the videos way back yeah. when, in 1992, I lived in Los Angeles, okay, uh, Dr. Brunel, and I was here, and I've actually, you know, I grew up in Korea, and I've uh, been in Korea, Korean descent, uh, uh, you know, born in Korea, but I went to the military school. I lived okay. in um, in Seoul, and my father um, worked for the U.S. government, and we were super lucky because there weren't very many Koreans in the military, going to military school, speaking the language, of, you know, uh, English and all that, and learning from, from it. And all my friends were of different variation, very, very different, because military people brings in every, every mm-hmm. person of culture and race. So I really got a really good diverse. But, but at the same time, I also heard a great deal of of um, eight racial slurs about Korean, about Asian, et cetera. But for me, I just kind of like let it rolled off my skin because I was actually very popular in my school, uh, being athletic, and I was well-known. But mm-hmm. when I came into the States, I never, um, I actually integrated very quickly. I, I got into, you know, because um, I moved to Monterey, California, and there weren't there were a lot of Asians there. Um, there were a lot of Italians and, you know, different again, I, I melded in very quickly. But when I was down here after I uh, graduated from UCLA and I was already a chiropractor at the time in 1992, it actually was the first time I felt I was different. It is very odd that yeah. I felt for the first time different because during that riot time with Rodney King and then the, um, the problem um, when there was a killing of a, a young girl in a Korean yeah. store, and then the whole uh, change in the dynamic between the Koreans and the African-Americans, it was really scary. Yeah. I never felt yeah. so different ever in my entire life until then. So, yeah. you know, you talk about trauma when you see these videos and you're really actually thinking, because I thought, you know what, I have got to save myself. I mean, that's what I felt. That I'm, yes. I'm in this position. I'm out on the road. Everyone's looting around me, and I've got to save myself. And I felt I've never felt that kind of fear. It was very, yeah. very, very difficult for me to yeah. deal with it. I'm sure it was like kind of like you were in shock about it because part of what you're talking about in terms of your background, you had been in a place where you felt comfortable being in, with diverse people, but also almost like when you experienced the racial um, slurs about being Korean, you were probably so grounded in who you were in terms of your own sense of yourself as a person, maybe as a daughter, maybe even as a person of Korean descent, where those slurs didn't impact you as much. So then to come to L.A. and have the experiences post the Rodney King Rebellion sounds like it probably just would have shaken you up at your core. And I think a lot of what people are seeing now is a lot of that, like, what? Like feeling shaken up by seeing things that was outside of their own frame of reference. 
And right. so then when we see these videos, when we see the officer on George Floyd's neck, you know, for eight minutes and 46 seconds, people are going, what? Like, just in shock and disbelief. And then, you know, That's rage right. comes forth and then anxiety and fear, like, will I be next? Um, and then um, for people of African descent, also there's this idea of trauma ghosting, this feeling of, okay, if this is still happening and I know it's still happening, I know people that it's happening to, when is the next really bad thing going to happen? And it sounds like for the first time for you, once you moved here in 1992, you had a sense of like, oh my goodness, I have to look behind my back, that kind of trauma ghosting experience. Mm. The, the thing that actually, what I felt a great deal, not only uh-huh. of that shock and disbelief and, and you know, my anxiety and fear for my life, but I actually felt a huge amount of shame, a huge mm. amount of guilt, which is not heard of. And we don't talk about that a lot. Yes. Right. Okay. And my, yes. my feelings of guilt and shame was the fact that I was Korean, you know, and yes. this is what happened to my co in my community. That yes. was huge. You know, and we don't talk about it. Yes, we don't talk about it. But it's one of the things that when you're talking about the book, White Fragility, that she addresses some of that in that, right? In terms of not, I mean, it's separate from you're speaking to the the guilt around what happened with the young black girl who was shot in the store by a Korean store owner. But this idea that someone who is a part of my community or from my community has done some injury. And what do I do about that being a part of who I am in terms of my cultural identity, right? Because our parts, our identities, we, you know, you can think of them as concentric circles, right? And so part of our identity is our cultural identity. So what do we do when parts of our identity, like our cultural selves, we have shame about or we feel some guilt about? My um, thought about that as a clinical psychologist is it's so important for us to lean into those feelings and then gain awareness about what that feeling means. So not just to feel it, but to say, what is this shame about? Or what is this guilt about? And if there's something to do in response to it, because what I'm also hearing from some of my patients who are non-black is, I want to do something different. Like, they're like, I want to live my life in a way that honors the fact that I've internalized anti-blackness without even realizing it, even to the point of me not even being aware that this was happening within the community, to now be aware of it because of social media or cell phone cameras, and this sense of, like, the shame of, oh, my goodness, look who I am in response to this community that I didn't even know that I had some privilege around or the guilt around I've done nothing about it. And so my thought is let's not run away from feelings that are uncomfortable for us to bear, that this is a time for us to learn how to bear them, but we can't bear them as just sole individuals. We need a community. We need Mm. other people, whether it's like study groups or circles where we come together and we're able to have healing moments or places where we're like, okay, let me get trained up around what these issues mean because I feel like I'm in kindergarten where there are other people who are in eighth grade, you know, other people with their lived experience, so they got graduate degrees on it, you know. Mm. And so I think leaning into what the feelings can actually instruct us is really important. So I appreciate you saying that because so many times people can't, they can't be honest with themselves around the shame and the guilt. They can talk about the sadness, but harder to talk about the shame and the guilt. It sure is. It sure is. And, and what you're saying is, you know, for me, it was a lot about uh, journaling. So that I can, even though I might not be able to share it with other people, you know, uh, and at that time, I was definitely felt ashamed that I didn't want to share that, right? But I was able to write about it and journal it. And that was my way of becoming more resilient. Can you explain what resilience is and why it's so useful in managing trauma? Yes. So when I think of resilience, I think of a tree that's in a storm and the tree bends but doesn't break. Okay, and so part of what we when we have resilience, what we're able to do is to return to a place of internal and even collective steadiness after something traumatic has happened. 
So part of the challenge now that we're facing is because there have been so many unresolved traumas, the resilience is being taxed, for, particularly for people of African descent, because our window of tolerance, Dan Siegel talks about any stress that we experience, a distressing experience, even traumatic experience that we have, we have a certain window of tolerance, like how much arousal can we personally be able to manage in response to that? And so the idea is to have enough internal fortitude, enough collective support so that we can manage that arousal. Well, sometimes it's too much, you know, and so resilience is all about how to be able to expand that window of tolerance so that when, dis- when stressors come, it's not that it's like going to be duck, a water off a duck's back, but that we're able to return to that core kind of grounding or steadiness. And so mm. resilience is really important for us to build. And particularly when we think about that window of tolerance, what people um, have talked about is when you come from marginalized communities, and when I talked about intersectionality, the more marginalized um, populations or communities that you identify with, the lower and smaller your window of tolerance. And so it's even more important to teach strategies around resilience, to have resilience building activities collectively and personally in order to open that window of tolerance. So that actually helps people who have been marginalized and who come from oppressed communities. Mm, You have a great um, PDF on your website. Uh, You know, can you please share your website first so that I can go ahead and discuss a little bit about what I found on your website? Um, Yes, yes. Go ahead and talk about your website. Oh, okay, yeah, BelovedBlackness.com. Beloved, B-E-L-O-V-E-D, Blackness, B-L-A-C-K-E-N-E-S-S.com. You, you talk about on this website, there's actually an, a download. You can, go, you can go and look at it. It's Coping During the COVID-19. It's the first yeah. one on your bar. And I absolutely love your acronym, HUGS. H-U-G-S. Yes. You know, we only got a few more minutes before we have to say goodbye. Can you just go what, talk about your hugs? Everyone can go to a belovedblackness.com and you can see this and get the download. There's so much great, valuable information here. But just briefly go over what hugs mean. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. So hugs is an acronym. So the H is for honesty. The U is for uplift. The G is for grieve. And the S is for soothe. And so when we talk about honesty, we want to talk about, like I mentioned, you know, silence is a hallmark of oppression. What are some ways that we can speak the truth about our experience? And so one of the thinkers who I really love is Audre Lorde. And she says, the true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations that we seek to escape, but that piece of the oppressor, which is planted deep within us, within each of us. So when we think about honesty, we have to be able to say, hey, I've internalized some inferiority in some ways as a person of African descent, or I have some shame about this part of myself because maybe I didn't do what I wanted to do. I didn't live up to my expectations. Or, man, I feel some frustration about this. We have to be honest about what our emotions are so that we can break out of the silence. And so the you is uplift. And what that means is, like, just particularly culturally, one of our values as black people is to have community. And so particularly during this pandemic, but especially with all of the unrest and the awareness of the racial violence that we've been um, tra- being more traumatized by, we have to surround ourselves with community. I've recently started a group with just some friends. It's about 12 of us who get together once a week for like five and 10 minutes, and we sing songs, like ancestral songs together. And it's so uplifting. It's not just the song that's uplifting, but it's the fact that we come together via Zoom virtually, sing these songs together, celebrate with one another, encourage each other to keep facing the, the, the week and to keep moving forth, you know? 
And so I'm thinking about that African proverb that I believe I even referenced in that part of uplift, which is, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And we want to go far, as not just as people of African descent, but as humanity. We want to go far, and so we need one another to do that. The other part of hugs is grieve. And so, man, there's so many losses we're having to contend with these days. And loss doesn't, grieving doesn't feel good. It never does. But it's so important because it signals that something really valuable we no longer have. And we need to be able to grieve and work through the feelings associated with that in order to come to a place of acceptance. And then the last is soothe. And so part of soothing is engaging in some of those resilient strategies, right, to be able to find ways to be able to calm our nervous system, to be able to be able to expand our window of tolerance. Some of the work that I do, like I have this weekly vlog, Beloved Blackness, where I talk about some of those, but I also do um, this annual production. It's a ceremony that I produce called Nakambuka Day. And part of the reason that I have Nakambuka Day is kind of capture some of what we're talking about with hugs, but it's an opportunity for us to grieve the losses of those African ancestors who died during the Middle Passage, during the enslavement period. And I'm real intentional during the ceremony to have so many soothing practices. I'll have people do a mindfulness meditation during it. I'll have them imagine and get resourced by an ancestor of theirs who may come to offer them words of encouragement for their journey. I have them name ancestors from the lines of their family that have maybe the most trauma to them and for them to actually do deep breathing as they do that. We do collective singing. We do African dancing and drumming. And so all of those will be considered soothing practices. Oh, God, love everything you're saying. Gosh, great energy. Dr. Brunel, I, I want to thank you, really. Thank you for being on our show. And uh, we've got so much to talk, more talk to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much. I so appreciate you having me. This was such a great conversation. Thank you, Dr. Suzanne. Oh, you bet. You bet. Oh, gosh. Everyone listen here. I know you've learned a great deal here from Dr. Brunel. Do go to her website, BelovedBlackness.com, and, and just share what she's doing and, and whatever rings true for you. And I, I would definitely take a look at her hugs uh, acronym, acronym um, download uh, file or whatever is there because it, it's amazing. And, you know, if you haven't, you're welcome. And if you haven't prescribed, I subscribe, excuse me, if you haven't subscribed already so uh, we can continue to do our very best here in Wellness Files, please do so. If you need help in digging deeper with her health, with your health issues, I work with people globally through phone and Skype consultations, and my contact info is available on my website, drsuzanne.com. Until next time, go out there and live your best life today, full of energy and enthusiasm and ultimate health and wellness. This is Dr. Suzanne sharing natural strategies on the Wellness for Life show right here on Radio MD. Stay well. <laughs>